This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And today we have a story of grief and loss. Tyra Dam is a middle school teacher in the close-knit community of Frisco, Texas. Here, Tyra shares her family story. So my husband, Steve, and I got married in 1994. We were young. I was 22, and he was 25. Um, we'd met after he graduated college, and I was still in college. And he and I w- lived in Lubbock, Texas, and I worked for the newspaper there as a reporter and a writer and editor. And then he was getting his MBA in health management at Texas Tech. And then we moved to Dallas, and he was a consultant with Arthur Anderson and would travel. He was on the road for three years, and we decided um, that we didn't want to have kids that way. So he found a really great job in Dallas at Children's Medical Center as an administrator, Um, but it was a special job because it was helping kids on Medicaid and CHIP. So children who typically don't get um, really good quality care in in an outpatient setting. So he started a clinic that now serves tens of thousands of kids in the Dallas area. Um, So he, he got that job and we had Cooper in 2001 and then we had Katie in 2005. Um, And so when Katie was born, we made the decision for me to leave journalism. It's hard to be a working mom um, in that kind of deadline-oriented field. And so that's also an important part of the story because I was able to stay home and still work from home and take care of our kids. Um, and then in around Thanksgiving 2007, we started noticing Steve had some unusual symptoms. Um, when I would talk with him on the cell phone, it sounded like he was slurring his words. He had a headache that wouldn't go away even with Tylenol or Advil. Um, He had difficulty swallowing thin liquids especially, and it upset him. It was the fall, and so I make soup. He loves my soups, and he was upset because he couldn't eat soup as well. Um, But he was also very healthy. So he was 39, ran 5Ks, half marathons, um, didn't drink caffeine, had given up drinking alcohol a year before. So he he was just the picture of health. And so he made an appointment to see his internal medicine doctor who couldn't really find anything wrong, but just suggested a couple of different tests. And I have a friend who's a speech pathologist. So I called her and, you know, said, we're doing a swallow study. Can you tell me what that means? And she asked me to go sit down and told me on the phone that the worst case scenario would be a brain tumor. And for some reason, as soon as she said those words, I just instinctively knew that's what it was. Um, Our kids at the time were two and six. So we went through the series of tests. There was an MRI that revealed a pretty large lesion in the brainstem. Um, But again, he was so healthy and the doctors just couldn't believe that that was a tumor and they wanted it desperately not to be. So we, they were hoping for demyelination We were hoping for MS, you know, we were hoping for all of these awful conditions that um, people live with, but again, they live with those conditions um, because a tumor in the brainstem is still to this day just a fatal diagnosis. So we went through a series of tests. Um, We decided ultimately to go to MD Anderson in Houston, not too far from home, about four and a half hours for the biopsy. Um, And the biopsy itself was risky. 
So I think in the 1980s, they would actually try to remove tumors that were in the brainstem, but all of those resulted in death immediately after surgery. The brainstem is a really small part of the brain, but it's like the operation center. So much goes through there. So um, removing healthy tissue from there is really dangerous. So anyway, we had, we went to MD Anderson. The biopsy was the longest that surgeon had ever done. Um, and they told us while he was still in recovery that it was most likely a grade three or grade four tumor. I think maybe two days later, so now we're in January, 2008, we learned that it was a glioblastoma in the pons of the brainstem. That's a malignant tumor affecting the brain or spine. And in general, patients have about three to six months to live with that diagnosis. And you know, all the doctors always tell you, this is, um, these are statistics, they don't represent a single patient, and you know, we fully expect that Steve will live longer. But there was never the promise that he would live much longer. It was, you know, just your, the typical shock and disbelief and trying to, you know, make bargains with God. And um, again, we were, we were young and healthy and we had two young children. Um, I had grown up in a divorced home with a single mom who struggled. And I made the decision very early in life that I would not be a single mom. You know, I was foolish enough to think when I was little that I would actually have control of all the circumstances. So, you know, part of what I was struggling with internally that I didn't want to share with Steve all the time because he was struggling, you know, with much more than I was with his diagnosis was I selfishly did not want to be a single mom. Um, And there was really no indication that that would not be, you know, where we would end up. And also being the, you know, parents of a two and a six-year-old who had the best daddy, you know, I mean, it just seemed really unfair. Um, But we also knew how lucky we were to live in an area with good um, medical care. So, you know, Steve working for Children's Medical Center was a huge blessing because he, we had access to doctors um, quickly and a lot of experts who were willing to help us read through journals and, and make sure that we had the best standard of care in place. And again, you're listening to Tyra Dam, and this story comes out of Frisco, Texas, hearing the worst news imaginable as a young bride, a two and a six-year-old in tow. And by the way, if you have stories like this, we want to hear them. They happen. We don't avoid them here on this show. And by the way, you haven't heard the end of the story yet, and what a story it is. But send yours to ouramericannetwork.org. We'll take a listen, and we'll put them right up on the airwaves so the rest of the country can hear them too. More with Tyra Dam, her story, so many people's stories in this country, diagnosed with cancer, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we left off with Tyra Dam and her family having just discovered the news of a tumor on her husband's brainstem. Let's return to her story. You know, through this diagnosis process, we had people helping us right away. We had a small group of friends who I trusted to take care of our kids because it was important to me that they have continuity of care and they not, you know, just be dropped off at a house here and there. And so a core group of friends who would step in to take care of Cooper and Katie, and then a wider circle of friends who would bring us meals, who um, came over one day, a friend came to clean my pantry. Just, you know, I wanted some sense of control, I think. Um, People would come and help us do dishes and do laundry. And so... We were overwhelmed in, in good and bad ways, obviously with the diagnosis and what was certainly to come, but also just overwhelmed with this outpouring of support from our neighborhood and our church community and our work friends. Um, so we had, there was some hope, you know, we had, there was chemotherapy and some other treatments, radiation that extended Steve's life and he continued to work. He lost function um, on his left side. So the tumor was on the right side. Um, he, he started losing function on the left. He could no longer drive. He had double vision. Um, he never complained. I mean, you know, I knew him well enough to know he was scared and he was sad and worried about what he would miss. But he also um, was positive with his colleagues, positive with Cooper and Katie. Um, we traveled as much as we could until he was just no longer able to travel. Um, and then... He passed away in September 2009 after 18 months. So we had, you know, a good, we had 18 months when we were told three to six. And Cooper and Katie now are four and eight. Um, Cooper had just started third grade when Steve passed away and Katie was in preschool. And that year we had, um, we had really great help from Steve's hospice's, the hospice agency. And that included 13 months of counseling. And they would, the counselors would come to our home and do art and play therapy, um, music therapy at the house. And so they gave us a lot of ideas on working through grief. Um, I guess the benefit of having that diagnosis so early was that I could also start preparing. Um, as a you know, journalist at the time, I, research was super important to me, so I spent a lot of time trying to find out, you know, the best um, group, support groups and books and people to talk to to help the kids and I through the grief process. And one of the things they suggested was on his birthday, so Steve died on September 7th, 2009, he would have turned 41 on November 4th, 2009. Um, We wanted a way to gather that community that was so important to us and wish Steve a happy birthday. So we walked down to the park at the end of our street. It's a big field. And there were probably 100, 150 people there. Um, And there were balloons. And, you know, Cooper and Katie's friends knew Steve. And so we wanted them to be a part of that too. So they wrote notes to Steve. And we tied the notes to the end of the balloons. The pastor, um, who was so important to our whole journey, was there and he spoke for a little bit and then we released the balloons and you know it was a way to wish Steve happy birthday. Um, And then the next year, 2010, we didn't have anything big planned and I realized how sad it was to have a birthday 
that you desperately wanted to celebrate and no one, you know, that person is not there. Um, and it was, I think the kids and I went to dinner and I thought about making a cake, but then that seemed strange because Steve wasn't there. And so, um, it was just a really, that was a rough year. Um, November, 2010 was really rough. And so I decided then that we needed to celebrate Steve still, um, how joyful he was and mischievous and how much he cared for others. And so the next year in 2011, the kids and I decided that we wanted to perform acts of kindness in his memory as a way to celebrate his birthday. And so he would have turned, let me think about this. He would have turned 43 that year. So we thought it would be fun to perform 43 acts of kindness on November 4th. But then we thought, well, we're, we're only three people. How are we going to do that? So we invited our friends and family members to help us. And I put it on Facebook and the response was overwhelming. We had hundreds and hundreds of people that year who performed acts of kindness in Steve's memory. We posted a little card. And so let's say you were at a coffee shop and you purchased coffee for the person behind you. You would also hand them a little note that said, this is in memory of Steve Dam um, to celebrate his life and legacy. And so that happened not just in Frisco in the Dallas area, but it happened all over Texas and the country and even the world. So friends we had who were traveling or who happened to be working overseas celebrated. And I blogged about it on my blog and we people posted things on Facebook. And so ever since then, on November 4th, we celebrate acts of kindness in Steve's memory. And it just continues to grow and um, show, I think importantly for my kids that, you know, the legacy that their dad has um, continues to have. And it's a way for us in, to give back so much of what we received while Steve was ill and while the kids and I were grieving. Um, there's no way you can repay that kindness. And I, I know that no one expects it, but it's important to Cooper and Katie and I to, to do what we can to help other people who are in similar situations. What are some specific acts of kindness that Tyra remembers? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, the, there are just some really sweet ones. There's um, a friend of mine, a colleague, her sister was traveling in Missouri and they had gone through a McDonald's drive through and they decided to pay for the person behind them. And they didn't have one of the cards printed off from online. So she just grabbed a receipt and scribbled what she could remember and, and wrote down uh, my email address, I think. And so she sent me a note that, that that had happened. And then later that day, I received an email from the very woman she had purchased dinner for. And it was a college student in Missouri who had no money and was having to make a choice between buying gas and buying food. And she was very hungry, and so she made the choice to buy food and yet she didn't have to pay for it um, because Amy Randall in front of her had purchased food for her. And so then she also had a little bit of money for gas. Um, you know, that's not a huge, big gesture, but in the moment that meant everything to this stranger in Missouri. Um, a lot of children participate. So there are kids who, you know, have their own passions. And so some will clean out their closets and donate toys to women's shelters where there are children, or they will um, hand make gifts for their teachers. Um, they take hot chocolate to the crossing guard. You know, I love to see kids, especially Cooper and Katie's friends, participate. Um, 
my brother-in-law lives in the Washington, D.C. area, and he has all kinds of clever things, and often he will buy metro cards, and he will go stand um, at a metro station in D.C. and look for people who might be tourists or someone who doesn't look comfortable, and he will off, you know, give them a card and offer to help if they need it. Um, all of the fire stations, I think, in our town have, on November 4th, received cookies and cakes and treats from people, um, which is especially meaningful because there's the local fire station that who they would come and help at our house. Um, as Steve was ill, he if he would fall, um, he sometimes we would need help just picking him back up. He was, you know, very medically fragile. And so I want to say the firefighters visited our house three times that summer. And so it just feels, you know, it's very special that others are repaying that kindness to the same firefighters who helped our family so long ago. They have chosen to use a hashtag for his birthday every year so that people can post about the random acts of kindness that they perform. After, you know, a couple of years of calling it just acts of kindness, we took on the hashtag damnkind. Our last name is spelled D-A-M-M. So we thought it was just kind of a fun wordplay. So now it's all, you know, hashtag damnkind, and that's how people use, um, when they perform acts of kindness, on November 4th or around his birthday, then people use that hashtag. So it's just been a fun way to um, to talk about it. And my middle school kids really love to use my last name <laughs> um, as my last name. But, you know, they feel like they're getting away with something. So they love to say hashtag damn kind as well. Believing that God is good in the midst of your worst nightmare is a fight of faith. Especially when having to explain it to your children. And when we come back, you'll hear about that part of the story and what a remarkable thing, how to turn grief into beauty. Random acts of kindness spread around the country from Steve's loss, from this great grief in this family. More of Tyra's story, Tyra Dam, and she's in Frisco, Texas, but it could be anywhere, USA. Her story here on Our American Stories, more after these messages. continue with Tyra Dam's story. In order to honor her husband's death every year on his birthday, she encourages people to perform random acts of kindness. What a beautiful way to deal with grief. But explaining grief and loss to her children, well, that can still be really difficult. Here's Tyra. We had, you know, just that basic idea of God being good, God providing comfort, um, and that God often provides that comfort through other people. Just that strong belief that we had that our life was not going according to the plans that we had, um, but that God would provide and take care of us. Now, we knew that that didn't mean that, you know, praying to God for Steve to have a cure. We knew that we held out hope for a miracle. 
but we also were realistic and knew that that God would not necessarily provide that miracle for an incurable, inoperable brain tumor. Having children um, really challenged that a lot as well. So Katie, who at the time of diagnosis was two, but is um, spiritual in a very specific way, again, in a way I think that um, just God intended to provide as comfort for her parents, you know, going through a really rough time. She she never questioned, at least to us and to this day, she's told me she's never questioned God's presence in all of that. Now, Cooper, who was six at the time of diagnosis and eight when Steve passed away, he did question. And, you know, of course, I welcomed that and encouraged him to talk to me or whomever he needed to to work through those. Um, and he will tell you now that his questioning of God made his faith stronger in the end. And again, he recognizes the people who've been placed in our lives as signs from God that we are okay. You know, we still, the kids and I still live in our community. We, we, I work very hard, um, but they, we are provided for, you know, and they recognize those things as, as gifts that aren't, aren't necessarily deserved, but are just you know, comforts from God. The grieving process is um, ongoing. Is That's one of the first pieces of advice I give. We're almost nine years now without Steve, and there are moments that, you know, it feels like it was a week ago. Um, so one is just having grace with yourself and permission to feel what you feel and not, um, not be hard on yourself if you're having a rough day. Um, I set a goal after Steve passed away that I would get out of bed every day. And I met that goal. And to me, that was a huge achievement. Now, it helped that I had two young children to take care of. Um, but I wanted to be able to say I could accomplish something every day. And for me, that first step was getting out of bed. Um, it's also important, obviously, to me and the kids that we keep Steve's memory alive. I, um, I do have friends who've grown up in homes where they don't talk about the loss. And that creates problems later. So although I'm... You know, I, I'm sure I've made lots of mistakes parenting. I hope that my kids realize as adults that us talking about Steve and celebrating Steve was not just to keep his memory alive, but to keep them emotionally healthy and to help them understand um, that loss is a part of life. And it's a huge challenge and it's unfair, but it's also something that we all face, you know. So meeting that challenge head on instead of ignoring it to me has been a huge part of our healing process. After going through something traumatic, there are a lot of grief triggers. Things that randomly remind you of the loss you've endured. And sometimes you just don't know how or when they will happen. One huge mistake I made that I didn't realize till the time, um, my son's Cub Scout troop was invited to go to DFW International Airport and greet troops as they were returning home. So we dressed in red, white, and blue, and we had flags, and we'd made signs. And so all these kids are lined up, so Boy Scouts and their families, plus children of mostly men who were returning from overseas. So, and we were maybe six months after Steve had passed away. So we were watching small children be reunited with their daddies. And I, I didn't even have to look at Cooper and Katie to know what they were feeling. Um, so again, that's you know, sometimes you have to give your per, yourself permission to not do maybe what everyone expects you to do. 
Um, you can't possibly foresee all of those grief triggers, um, but that's one I really wish I would have um, thought a little bit more about before we volunteered to help. You know, you, you have to protect yourself, and certainly if you are a parent, um, helping parent children through a loss, you have to protect your kids um, as much as you can. So again, there are triggers that you don't anticipate, but uh, that's a regret that I had for sure. What are some grief triggers that Tyra has experienced? We all expect that birthdays and holidays are going to be tough. Um, And so sometimes I think we prepare ourselves so much that in the end, those aren't difficult. And you're in the busyness of Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever your family's favorite holiday is. And because you've anticipated and you've sort of steeled yourself for the grief, maybe it doesn't come. Um, But then there are moments that we just can't anticipate. Um, Well, for me, like pretty much the month of May, for some reason, still is a struggle. And I think it's because we go to so many celebrations, band concerts or athletic banquets where you see a mom and a dad and a child celebrating. And I just feel that loss in a different way during those celebratory times. This is Cooper's senior year. And I'm already preparing myself for, you know, times when you expect, even if there are parents who are divorced, you expect that those parents civilly come together to celebrate their child. And Cooper's the only one really in his friend group who is without a a living parent. You know, he's got me, but he doesn't have dad. And so, and I can't, I think I've gotten better at anticipating those triggers, but the kids are still struggling with that. Um, I don't ever want to tell them, hey, this is maybe a day that you're going to be sad about daddy being gone because I don't want to put, I don't want to impose my thoughts on theirs or, you know, make them feel like they have to own my emotions. Uh, But I think as they get older, they're starting to understand a little better about what may make them sad about Steve's loss. And as they get older, you know, I feel more comfortable letting them know, you know, this was a sad day for me because I really miss daddy. How did you feel? You know, that way I own my own feelings and then they get a chance to reflect. Um, and they're, you know, we, uh, we've gone through a lot together. And so for the most part, they, they seem very comfortable, you know, talking about it with me and, and letting me know that they had a rough time for, you know, because of a certain moment that no one was expecting to happen. Well, and some things are silly, like um, Steve and I love to watch the sitcom The Office together, but he passed away before Jim and Pam got married, (laughs) which I know they're fictional, but that was one of our routines was to watch that show together. And so I remember watching by myself because the kids were way too young to watch that show. And I just was sobbing. I did not expect to cry while watching The Office, but it was, you know, that shared experience that we no longer shared. Um, and you know, it was like a couple, a fictional couple who you wanted desperately to get married and there they were. And I so badly wanted to tell Steve about it. So even now, if that show comes on as a rerun, I can't really watch the whole thing because it brings up a grief memory, even though Steve wasn't there to share it with me. She understands that we all experience loss in some way or another. Well, and losses doesn't always mean that it's someone who's passed away, right? It may be a broken relationship or just a time when you didn't make good choices, right? We grieve over a lot of things. And so we, I think we all, whether we've had a, a great death or not in our life, we all have those grief triggers. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. 
And great work, Faith. And thank you, Tyra, for sharing that story. And anyone who's suffered a loss knows it never goes away. It's just, closure is just, well, it's a silly word. doesn't mean anything. And by the way, Tim Dunn, a dear friend of mine, wrote a book called Yellow Balloons. He had lost his two-year-old granddaughter, and he had this advice. Embrace the grief. Don't run from it, and certainly don't hide it. Embrace the grief. Cry. And you may be crying for the rest of your life. At times, you are not expecting yourself to. And there's a reason for it. This is Lee Habib, Tyra Dam's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. And we're following Lewis and Clark along their two-and-a-half-year adventure, exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 31st feature on what happened during their summer over 200 years ago. So when we go on a river today, it's kind of a novelty. Rivers for them were highways. They understood that a river is the best way to move goods in the interior of the continent. You're listening to our resident Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. So they knew that their keelboat, which drew three feet of water, they knew that that boat wasn't going all the way to the Rocky Mountains. They didn't quite know when they would have to abandon it. It turns out that it was in today's North Dakota at Fort Mandan. And so then Lewis famously says, our vessels consisted of six small canoes and two large pirogues. And they were essentially large rowboats. When they got to the mouth of the Marias River, they abandoned the red pirogue and buried it, assuming that they would resurrect it on the return journey. Then when they got to the Three Forks area around Dillon, Montana, they realized that now they were going to be crossing the mountains and the white pirogue was too bulky and too heavy to carry up over the Bitterroot, so they abandoned it. And with no large watercraft left to carry their supplies, Lewis was giddier than a grown man ever should be to pull out something that he'd been saving for a moment such as this. An iron-framed canoe. It was collapsible. It weighed about 210 pounds. Uh, This probably was the brainchild of Lewis and Jefferson. And they assumed that if they could have this iron frame, that the time would come when they would need a kind of sudden boat, a kind of constructible boat. And when you read about this, it's astonishing. They, They wind up getting 39 skins from some poor elves and laying them out and sewing them together like a quilt and then stretching that tarp, that fur skin tarp, over the iron frame and assuming that it's going to be a reliable vessel that will float maybe eight or 9,000 pounds worth of gear. They spent almost a month at this. This must have been an exceedingly tedious business, and Lewis is very certain that this is going to be a masterpiece of his own ingenuity and planning. And they, they finished the thing. And Lewis puts it in the water, 
and says triumphantly, it floated like a perfect cork. But then a few hours later, it sank ignominiously because of the leaks. And Lewis had to admit that the, the experiment, he called the boat, the experiment was a failure. I need not add that this circumstance mortified me. And they had no choice now but to dismantle it and bury the iron in case they needed it on the return journey. This is one of the few times in the course of the expedition that you sense that Clark was unhappy or even angry with Lewis. This failure was a great disappointment. He probably regarded the iron boat as a whimsical and notional idea. Then when it sank, Clark had the responsibility of doing what probably he was planning to do from the beginning, which is go cut down trees and make canoes out of them. So they've now lost weeks. So this is a sign of Jeffersonian influence. This is, you can feel Jefferson's hand in this iron frame boat, and you can see the difference between the Jeffersonians, who are idealists and inventors and whimsical geniuses, and the pragmatists led by Clark. And, and Clark usually doesn't express any frustration in his journals, but if you read the account of, of his acknowledging that the boat had been a failure and he now had to go take a crew of men to, to carve out boats, you can feel his exasperation. It's one of a handful of moments in the history of the expedition where you can kind of sense the character differences and, and the tensions that sometimes arose between these two men who were co-captains, both Virginia, Kentucky gentlemen and slaveholders, but wired very differently in terms of their character and, and personality types. Lastly, on the subject of their boats, Lewis had written to Jefferson upon their April return to the road that he'll be sending back another boat and some men soon, along with that copy of his journals that he was still working on cleaning up. But now... I've decided not to because he said, I'm going to need everybody I've got for one thing, but also if some depart at this point, the others may lose heart may wish that they too were returning and as he likes to say on occasions like this it, it could create a morale problem and it might defeat the expedition altogether that it, it could kind of ruin the esprit de corps in which we're all for one and one for all and we're going all the way and nobody turns back and so there's one implication of this uh, and that is that from about june 1st 1805 Till October something, 1806, Jefferson knows nothing of the Lewis and Clark expedition, whether they're even still alive. And there is a lot of speculation in Washington that something has gone wrong, that they may have died, disease, Indian attack, lost, who knows. But there's a lot of speculation that they're, they're not coming back. Meanwhile... Some of the Corps were likely concerned about a much more pedestrian matter. Here's Sergeant Ordway. It being the 4th of Independence, we drank the last of our ardent spirits. So they've been carefully husbanding their supply of liquor from the beginning of the expedition because alcohol is very heavy, you know, eight pounds at least per gallon. So you can never carry enough. 
they couldn't possibly carry enough alcohol to service the expedition from start to finish. But in the Army, men are entitled to a small glass of spirits every day as part of the Army regs. And of course, it's an important part because it, it gives them a sense of reward and relaxation. And so they're pretty careful with their liquor. And this is one reason why they're so hard on men who steal liquor. And so it seems almost like a miracle to us that they ran out on the 4th of July. You know, it would have been wrong if they had run out of whiskey on June 15th. It just seems like almost providential that they were able, They maybe they did, maybe they, they were careful to make sure there was enough left and they were merry. And the captains say that because they have so little alcohol that it intoxicated them more than it would have if we had been back in Washington, D.C. or Pittsburgh. You know, Clark really writes beautifully about this. He said they danced. The party amused themselves dancing, all lively and cheerful. Well, you know, we had this wonderful dance. He said it went on quite a long time until there was a thunderstorm. And that kind of dampened, didn't dampen their spirits, but it sort of put an end to the celebration. And so you get this lovely picture of a kind of a 4th of July. It's really one of those moments that allows the expedition to rise from routine reconnaissance into kind of American epic. You see a black man and a Shoshone Hidatsa woman and a number of mixed blood people and people from New Hampshire and Pennsylvania and Kentucky and Virginia all here in this in the, in the heart of the heart of the heart of the continent having a little 4th of July celebration and so this is the sort of thing that lifts the expedition into American memory. There's something about this one that keeps touching these, these mythic energy pools and, and lifts it out of routine reconnaissance into something like American romance or American epic. But from that point on, they have no alcohol. Fast forward five weeks, and Meriwether Lewis could have used some alcohol. Lewis is a very high-strung, determined, driven sort of leader, and he knows that he has to get these men out to the Pacific and back again safely, and that time is always a factor. Lewis is always in a hurry. He's always impatient. He's always eager to be moving, and when he's not moving, it really bothers him. So they're running behind in fact, the expedition thought it would get all the way to the Rocky Mountains in the first year of travel, and they only got to what's now North Dakota, and they had 700 miles ahead of them before they reached the Rockies. And so they're always behind, and Lewis is acutely aware of this, and he knows that there are opponents to Jefferson in Congress, the Federalists, and they will leap at the chance to discredit the president. So Lewis actually frets over Jefferson's relations with Congress more than he needed to. I mean, certainly Jefferson, one of the great statesmen and politicians in human history, was better able to handle all of that than somebody who's thousands of miles away. But Lewis takes it very personally, and he has a very strong desire to make sure that Jefferson doesn't get wrongly abused or criticized for the expedition. So when they leave the Great Falls, Lewis is in a tear. He just wants to move. He's pushing, but you, you can... You can say whatever you want, but the expedition is going to move at about the pace that it's going to move. You have to keep boats going up against the current. You have to feed everybody. There are medical issues. Uh, 
there may be encounters with native peoples. You just can't really accelerate the pace. You just don't want to lose any days by staying in one place when you don't have to. And great job as always, Alex, and thanks as always also to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark Periodical. We proceeded on. That's his voice you're hearing through almost all of these. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at ClayJenkinson.com. And he's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes, Jefferson deserves it. This is Lee Habib, the most epic road trip ever. Lewis and Clark on the remarkable journey west and back. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories of all sorts on this program. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Again, sign up for our free newsletter, our five best stories each week, straight into your inbox. And by the way, send the link to friends. And today we bring you a story about a catastrophe of epic proportions that took place in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's Jesse. You can inflate a balloon in three seconds, four seconds, I understand. How long is it going to take these kids with no experience? We're figuring that they'll do about two to three balloons a minute. I've been doing this since I was 15 years old, so it's unfair to compare. But uh, two to three balloons a minute, each kid is going to do correctly about 700 balloons or so uh, for the day. And and we'll do it in about four to six hours, all the balloons. In September of 1986, United Way of Cleveland, Ohio, set a world record by releasing almost one and a half million balloons up into the sky. Don't remember, folks, don't park on the square because this ain't the place for your car this weekend. (laughs) Back to you. Sounds like fun, David. The event was intended to be a harmless fundraising publicity stunt, but the balloons drifted back over the city, Lake Erie, and land in the surrounding area, causing problems for traffic and the nearby airport. I understand we might have a northerly wind, too, so they'll all wind up over Canada. (laughs) (laughs) The stunt was coordinated by Balloon Art, a Los Angeles-based company that spent six months preparing for this. Rectangular structure the size of a city block measuring 250 feet by 150 feet and rising three stories high, covered with a one-piece net of woven mesh material was set up to hold the balloons. Inside the structure, 2,500 students and other volunteers spent many hours filling balloons with helium. Ladies and gentlemen, live from downtown Cleveland, it's Big Chuck and Little John in front of the biggest happening around. They originally planned to release 2 million balloons, but stopped at over 1.4 million. What is your name? Tanya Pierre. Okay, Tanya, show everybody what you have on your hands there. What are those? Let's say bandages. Okay, and what are they for? They're for getting away from sores, sores in your hands. Okay, did you get any blisters? Yeah, three. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Okay. The children would sell sponsorships to benefit United Way at the price of $1 for every two balloons that were purchased. Okay, Chuck, as you can see, they're going strong. They're blowing them up. I still think they have the record. Back to you, Chuck. It's Cleveland, it's your time. It's time to say yes. It's time to say it is a happening city. We are on the move. 
it's no longer the butt of jokes or anything. I've been in this city now for six months and I absolutely love it. You know, my wife and I have even talked about moving here and our friends in LA think we're nuts. On Saturday, September 27th, 1986, with a rainstorm approaching, organizers decided on an early release of the balloons at about 1.50 p.m. Eastern. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Here they go. Lift off. Amazing. And the flame is up. There they go, John. Close to 1.5 million balloons rose up from Cleveland's public square surrounding Terminal Tower. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no mistake on the lake anymore. Cleveland has now broken the Guinness Book of World Records and released over 1,500,000 balloons. Think of, think, think of that, Chuck. The Guinness Book of World Records, the Cleveland home of the, home of the, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. All of this in Cleveland, Ohio. City. Now, typically, a helium-filled latex balloon that's released outdoors will stay up in the air long enough to be deflated before it descends to Earth. However, the balloon-fest balloons were hit with a front of cool air and rain, which caused them to drop towards the ground, still inflated, clogging the land and waterways of northeast Ohio. Two fishermen, who had gone out on September 26th, were reported missing by their families the day of the event. It's been an exhausting search for these Coast Guardsmen. They've been out on the water most of the day looking for two 40-year-old Cleveland men, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick. They went out fishing about an hour before last night's heavy storm blew through. This is their boat, a pair of life jackets still in it, along with a hat and a fishing pole. The boat's motor is gone. Its sides are battered, apparently, from pounding all night against this section of the break wall off Edgewater Park. That's where the Coast Guard found the boat about 8.30 this morning. When the crew tried to spot the fishermen floating in the lake, the balloons in the water made it impossible to spot anyone in the lake. Ironically, that big balloon launch in Cleveland today is one of the things that's making this search so tough for the Coast Guard. Can you imagine trying to find somebody floating out here or even spotting a life jacket with all these balloons on the water? It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack here because you're, you're looking for more or less a head or an orange life jacket. And here you have a couple hundred thousand uh, orange, orange balloons and... It's just hard, hard to decipher which is which. On September 29th, the Coast Guard suspended its search. The fishermen's bodies were subsequently washed ashore. Because of weather, 60% of the balloons launched landed here instead of the planned 10%. Many of them were found on Lake Erie. The local airport had to shut down a runway. Traffic collisions were also reported as drivers swerved to avoid slow-motion blizzards of multicolored balloons. But the balloons that covered the lake and caused concern on Saturday are no longer here today. No one's quite sure where they went, but at least they're no longer posing a threat to fish and wildlife, and they're not littering the lake. While the event was a total loss and a complete disaster, the 1988 copy of the Guinness Book of World Records recognized the event as a world record largest ever mass balloon release, with 1,429,643 balloons launched. And that is Balloon Fest 86. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And we have a, a real story to tell you. This is not, we're not making this up. It's really happened. Mary Ellen bought two bunches of balloons to give to John and I here. She came down and one of the bunches of balloons she had tied to her watch. And the watch opened up 
and uh, the balloons took the watch, and it's now going out east somewhere. So John and I say, if anybody finds Mary Allen's watch tied to a bunch of balloons like this, and if you return it to the station, we'll have all kind of rewards for you. And great job, as always, on that, Jesse. And again, to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our free newsletter. And by the way, share our stories with your friends and send your stories to us because we'll make them happen. Go to ouramericannetwork.org, share your stories, and share our stories with everyone you know. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and this next story comes to us from John Elfner, and he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School, and that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. John is beginning his 20th year of teaching high school students, and that's no duck walk, folks, if you've raised them, if you've been around them, but it's also a joy. And today, he enlightens the rest of us. Friday night and we're in the south suburbs of Chicago. We're at a high school football game. The stands are packed, the students and fans are excited for the opening kickoff, and the marching band is playing the school's fight song. On the field is coach Ted Venegas. Hey coach, who's your favorite president? Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president because he saved football. That may seem like an odd claim, but Venegas is not just a coach, he's also a U.S. history teacher. And he knows the intimate connection between Teddy Roosevelt and football. You see, the modern game of football is nothing like the game in the early 1900s. The early game of football is a lot more like violent rugby than the game that we know today. You can see some of the early games on film, including what claims to be the first recorded game between Princeton and Yale. It's not much to look at. Just 11 burly guys wearing very little protective equipment slamming into each other on the line. On most plays, the ball carrier runs into the scrum, is attacked by the defense, which itself is being mauled by big offensive linemen, typically ending up in a very large pile of very large young men. Presuming no one is maimed on the play, all 22 players get up, no huddle, line up again, and on to the next play. Historian Brian Ingracia, author of the book The Rise of the Gridiron University, Higher Education's Uneasy Alliance with Big-Time Football, talks about the early game of football. College athletes have figured out ways to win very, very efficiently, but also in ways that are very kind of boring and also very potentially dangerous. So you've got the flying wedge, which is a play where you've got, uh, you know, one player with a number of other players in front of him running down the field. And this can be very, very dangerous. And they used to refer to this kind of football for the forward pass as kind of five yards in a cloud of dust. And passing the ball was illegal. Every play was a running play. On most plays, the ball carrier ran straight through the middle of the line. Players and coaches began to figure out more effective ways to physically move bodies around to get their ball carrier through that line. But with limited rules and little regard for safety, the game got really rough. 
There's a very famous case in 1897 where a University of Georgia player named Richard Vaughn Gammon, he actually died in a game played in Atlanta between the University of Georgia and the University of Virginia. And there's a moment in 1897 where the state of Georgia came very, very close actually to outlawing college football. Not surprisingly, this collision of 22 players, play after play, led to frequent injuries, some of them fatal. Young men are dying on the field. Oftentimes when they are, it's traumatic brain injuries, concussions, spinal injuries. Sometimes they're, they die immediately on the field. Sometimes they might get injured and they might not die for another week or two weeks. There's this growing concern around the country that this game has become very violent and is killing these young men. And over the next decade, things got worse. In 1905 alone, 18 high school and college football players died while playing the game. Dozens of others were severely injured, and the rest were just happy to escape with their lives. The violence of the game was unacceptable. With America's young men dying and being maimed on the field, football became something that major universities could no longer tolerate or sponsor. Both Yale and Harvard were considering canceling their programs. But then an unlikely savior stepped in, President Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt was a fan of football. He saw it as a way to season young men. Roosevelt had wanted to play when he was a Harvard man, but his asthma kept him from being involved. He said of football, In life, as in a football game, the principle to follow is hit the line hard. Don't foul and don't shirk, but hit the line hard. His toughness is legendary. Teddy popularized the term the strenuous life. He describes what he meant by that in an 1899 speech. I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort, of labor and strife. I preach to you then, my countrymen, that our country calls not for the life of ease, but for the life of strenuous endeavor. And this was more than just talk. The stories of T.R. living the strenuous life are nearly endless, but here are a few of my favorites. First, he maintained a strict physical regimen, going so far as to box with a sparring partner in the White House. He referred to boxing as a condensed way to fit exercise into his busy schedule. And T.R. was no boxing hack. He had boxed during college on Harvard's intramural boxing squad, but his pursuit of boxing into his 50s ultimately cost him. In one sparring session, he sustained an injury to his left eye and lost his vision in that eye permanently. Accordingly, I thought it better to acknowledge that I had become an elderly man and would have to stop boxing. I then took up jujitsu for a few years. A second presidential physical pastime Roosevelt enjoyed was called single stick. It is what it sounds like. Two opponents armed with a single stick whack each other with that single stick. Roosevelt and his good friend, Major General Leonard Wood, regularly engaged in this practice. In a nod to the danger of the game, they would wrap pillows around themselves for protection. But that didn't always do the trick. One time, Roosevelt got whacked in the head by General Wood's stick and suffered a large bump in a black eye. No problem for Roosevelt, it was merely evidence of his living the strenuous life. By the way, care to guess which sport Wood played in college? Yup, football. But I saved the best story for last, and I'm going to let another figure that knows a lot about leadership in sports, just like Roosevelt, tell the story. Pat Williams is the vice president of the Orlando Magic and has written a book on leadership called 21 Great Leaders. He tells my favorite story about TR. Teddy Roosevelt was getting ready to go over to the big auditorium to deliver a speech when he was running for president again in the Bull Moose Party. And when he came out to get in the car, 
a man who had been trailing him for weeks and months finally caught up with him and fired a shot right into his chest. Well, Roosevelt's speech was in his uh, vest pocket, uh, along with his glasses case, and it, it dulled the blow of the bullet. And they were wanting to rush him to the hospital. Roosevelt says, take me to the auditorium. And the next thing you know, Roosevelt is standing up at the podium telling the audience exactly what just happened. I've just been shot. The bullet is in me now. So I cannot make a very long speech, but I will try my best. The crowd thought he was joking, but then Roosevelt pulled back his jacket to reveal the blood all over his white shirt. And then he exclaimed, When he telegrammed his wife to assure her that he was okay, he described the bullet wound as... Trivial. Trivial? Are any bullet wounds trivial? Well, maybe when you're Teddy Roosevelt living this strenuous life, some of them are. So what does all this have to do with football? Roosevelt saw football as a way to develop young men in this strenuous life. I believe in rough games and in rough manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. But not everyone agreed. By 1905, the Prohibition movement was gaining momentum. No, not the Prohibition of Alcohol, the Prohibition of Football. John J. Miller, author of the book The Big Scrum, How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football, talks about this movement. A lot of people are becoming concerned about their brutality and violence of the sport. They're looking at this and they're, they're, they're saying this is, this is unacceptable in advanced societies like our own. Gladiatorial combat in the Roman amphitheater. And we are not barbarians in 20th century America. Therefore, we should banish football. Newspapers start to write articles about the evils of football. And a Cincinnati newspaper goes so far as to publish a cartoon titled The Grim Reaper Smiles on the Goalpost which depicts the angel of death reclining on the crossbar overlooking a pile of bodies on the field. The people who believed this created a social and political movement. They were led by the president of Harvard University, Charles W. Eliot, uh, but others joined this movement as well. Lots of people in higher education were involved. Newspapers were involved. Muckraking journalists were involved. And this movement is no idle threat. Three major programs, Columbia, Duke, and Northwestern, cancel their program. Harvard is on the verge of doing the same, with Harvard's president referring to the game as more brutalizing than prize fighting, cockfighting, or bullfighting. Even Roosevelt's own Secretary of War, William Howard Taft, a future president, threatens to dismiss any West Point football players if they engage in too much violence on the football field. Some schools even replace football with rugby because rugby was less brutal. So football is facing a genuine crisis of extinction. Could football survive the growing movement to ban the sport? And when we come back, we'll find out the answer to that question. And we're listening to one of our contributors. And he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburb of Chicago. And that's John Elfner doing the storytelling. When we come back, Roosevelt saves football? More of that story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to sign up for all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. Our newsletter, our weekly newsletter. Again, that's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More on Teddy Roosevelt and football with John Elfner after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return to John Elfner and the improbable story of a president and the survival of one of our great national sports. So in 1905, just as Roosevelt was beginning his second term, he saw that football was facing a truly existential crisis. Major schools had already canceled their programs, and the Ivy Leagues, most notably Harvard, were considering canceling their programs. I just want to take a moment to emphasize how important it is that the president of Harvard, Charles Eliot, wanted to cancel his football program. It may be hard to imagine today, but Harvard was once the premier college football program in the country. It was also one of the first, playing its inaugural game in 1873. They won the national championship in 1890, 1898, and again in 1899. And Harvard routinely saw their players named as first-team All-American selections. Because professional football was yet to be well-established, the college game received enormous national attention, and Harvard was at the top of that list. When Harvard and Yale played each year, it was simply known as the game. And just two years earlier, Harvard had built a massive stadium at the cost of $200,000. In today's money, that would be about $5 million. Despite that enormous expense, the president of Harvard was eager to ban the game because of its brutality. And if Harvard, one of the oldest and most successful programs in the nation, was to banish its program, many schools would follow, perhaps leading to the end of football entirely. But this is a problem for Roosevelt. Roosevelt believed that college football, brutal as it was, provided a training ground for our nation's young men. John J. Miller explains. It's not merely entertaining, but he thinks it's a positive social good because he thinks sports turn boys into men. They teach things that you cannot learn in classrooms or from books. They teach that when you get knocked down, you should stand back up. They teach you how to win with dignity, how to lose with grace, how to work with teammates, how to take orders from a coach. They teach you so many things you cannot learn in other ways. Roosevelt firmly believed that developing these qualities as young men would serve these men if they were ever called to war. Pat Williams explains. Truly, I think he saw football as a battle without guns, but I think he also saw that it developed leaders that it it developed physical and mental toughness in young men. And Roosevelt knew more than a little about battle. In 1898, when the Spanish-American War broke out in Cuba, Roosevelt was serving as assistant secretary to the Navy, perhaps the safest government post in all of Washington, D.C. But Roosevelt didn't want to be in Washington during the war. He quit his cushy post and founded, funded, and recruited his own military unit called the Rough Riders. He craved action, and he wanted to be in the middle of the action. And so when the Spanish-American War broke out, there was nothing that was going to stop T.R. from getting involved. Uh, he raised a troop of men, you know, who he had known for years, some of them from his time out west. And he put this group together, and uh, down they went to Cuba. And uh, he was part of that invasion up to San Juan Hill and was in the middle of the action. There were real bullets being fired. and. T.R. was right in the middle of it. Any guesses on what past experience many of those Rough Riders had that qualified them for service in the eyes of Roosevelt? That's right. Football. So Roosevelt had experienced war, and by living the strenuous life before his time with the Rough Riders, he was ready for it. But how would America's young men be prepared for the next war? 
Roosevelt believed football was a place where the skills needed in war, teamwork, leadership, overcoming obstacles, and even conquering territory could be developed. So here's Roosevelt's challenge. He loves the idea of the strenuous life, not only for himself, but for young men. Football is a part of that and something he supports. But many major universities are getting ready to drop their programs, and his own son had just had his nose broken in a game. What should he do? Well, in true Rooseveltian fashion, TR used his bully pulpit to call the presidents and coaches of the Ivy League schools together to change the rules. Here again is Brian Ingracia. In October of 1905, he calls in Walter Camp, as well as a number of other individuals associated with Harvard and Yale and Princeton. They show up at the White House, they meet for about two hours, and they essentially come out there with an agreement. We are going to do something to clean up football. So that's it, right? Roosevelt saved football. Wrong. After the meeting, nothing happened until a pair of highly publicized tragedies occurred on the football field. Right around Thanksgiving, there are two really important games. There's a game between New York University and Union College in which one of the players for Union College, Harold Moore, actually dies from injuries sustained within the game. And on the same day, there's there's a broken nose on a late tackle in the Harvard-Yale game. And it's kind of those two events on the same day that really, really pushed university leaders when they say, we need to do something about this. And they do. They gather together and start to make major rule changes. And these are the same men that Roosevelt gathered at the White House just months earlier who initially didn't want to make those changes. Roosevelt went so far as to send representatives to the meeting to oversee those changes. The single most important rule change of 1906 was the legalization of the forward pass. The reason why they decided to legalize the forward pass, I think it's going to be safer. They said it's going to open up the field of play. Players are going to be spread out more on the field than they currently are. There's going to be fewer bad tackles. And it worked. Fatalities reduced year after year and made the game safer for the players and also made the game more exciting. Deaths on the field started to drop. The claims of gladiatorial brutality made by the prohibition of football movement were undercut by many of the rule changes. Not only is the forward pass added, but other rules are introduced to make the game less brutal. They made the personal foul a heavily penalized infraction. They created uh, a neutral zone at the line of scrimmage. And they were all done with the idea toward improving player safety. And the threats to football's existence receded. Schools like Harvard, whose president was a leader of the prohibition of football movement, abandoned the goal of canceling their football program. And the rules committee that changed the rules of football later became what we know today as the NCAA. They continued to tinker with the rules of football over time, making it more and more safe, until the time came when a death in football was regarded as a freak accident. So did Teddy Roosevelt really save football? Roosevelt certainly made saving football from the prohibition of football movement a national issue, and without that, who knows how effective that movement might have become. Banning a very popular national sport seems unlikely, but banning the sale and manufacture of alcohol seems far more unlikely, and look where that ended up. Regardless, Coach Ted Venegas still ranks Roosevelt as his favorite president, especially when he is calling a pass play. Let's go Hero Vegas Sky on one. Set, hike. Quarterback drops back. He rolls right. The man down the middle. He sees him. Passes up. It's caught. Run for the touchdown. And that's why Teddy Roosevelt's my favorite president. And that pass couldn't happen without Teddy Roosevelt. So like I said, Teddy Roosevelt saved football. 
And great job on that, and that's John Elfner, and he's a U.S. history teacher at Homewood Flossmoor High School, and that's in the south suburbs of Chicago. And John's been teaching history for 20 years to high school students, and my dad was a lifer as a high school history teacher, basketball coach, ended up being a superintendent of schools. But his favorite thing to do was to be on the court with the boys or taking a road trip and seeing American action in history and making it come alive. So I'm grateful to a dad who I got to do that with, field trips to Gettysburg and Vicksburg and the rest. And by the way, that was John Miller's voice you heard, and he's a journalism teacher at Hillsdale College, which sponsors are This Days in History. And by the way, football's ready for another big rule change. A lot of people think changing the zone defense will end all these brain injuries. We'll see if that happens, but it's the zone defense more than likely that's the cause of so many of these brain injuries. But what a story this is. The President of the United States intervening to save a game he thought prepared boys for war. Teddy Roosevelt's story. Football's story. Here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about movies on this show. And in this next story, you're about to hear from two guys who loved a movie so much when they were kids that they recreated the movie in their own backyard and on an epic level. Here's Jesse with a story. It all started in 1981 with Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first of the Indiana Jones series starring Harrison Ford. It was that year's top-grossing film and one of the biggest box office earners of all time with upwards of $390 million in sales. But for whatever reason, the very following year, small town of Ocean Springs, Mississippi, 11-year-old Chris Stramopoulos and 12-year-old Eric Zala set out to recreate Raiders of the Lost Ark on video, scene for scene, every shot, every line of dialogue, the entire film using the original screenplay and score by John Williams. These kids are nuts. Not only did they pull it off, they pretty much nailed it. Shooting for this epic fan film began in 1982 and continued over the next seven summers on a shoestring budget of $5,000. It's quite possibly one of the best fan films ever made. They have screenings for this thing all over the world, and everybody in Hollywood knows about it. Now, the idea to remake the film scene by scene was hatched by then 11-year-old Chris Dramopoulos, but it was 12-year-old Eric Zala who had all of the experience. Yeah, I did a class film in sixth grade, which Chris saw. We rode on the bus to elementary school together, and he, as a result, mistakenly thought I knew something about film. So when he got this wacky idea to remake Raiders Lost Ark shot for shot, 
Um, that and the fact that I borrowed his Raiders Lost Art comic book on the bus is what led him to give me a call and say, hey, I'm remaking Raiders Lost Art. Do you want to help? And I thought all the sets were built, everyone was cast. I'd just sort of walk on and help. Little did I know, the only thing that Chris had done at that point was buy the published screenplay and, as any good producer will do, cast himself as Indiana Jones. So where did Chris get the idea to remake what was then a major blockbuster release in the early 80s? He says it was all just about kids having fun. The whole sort of originating idea was really born out of more of a role-playing thing. It was a, it was a fantasy. It was, yeah, a creative project ensued and, and, a, and a lifelong collaboration ensued. But I don't think it was ever like... I don't ever think it entered our minds, you know, uh, like we sat down and, and thought, okay, well, we're about to put a, a whole, you know, the next seven years of our lives into a creative project. What else do you want to work on? You know, what other, what other things that... It's like, this is what we're doing, and we're kind of going for it, and... And we had no long, uh, no idea how long it was going to take us, so we sort of dove in and did it. So I don't, I don't know if we had that spectrum of creative thinking yet. I think it was just like, hey, this is it. This is what we're doing. Wouldn't it be exciting if? And we just sort of went after it with that childlike energy. How did these kids in Southern Mississippi back in the early '80s pull it off? Eric explains that it wasn't really easy. As a uh, 11 and 12 year old, respectively, growing up in Mississippi in the uh, 80s, pre-internet, you know, how do you remake a 26 million dollar movie on your allowance? You know, we knew nothing about it, and and for the first year, so we kind of, figuratively speaking, groped around in the darkness as far as figuring out how you do that. You know, I wrote a 600-page shot list, and then it got to the end and realized it was utterly worthless. You know, close up, and he walks into room. I mean, what are you going to do with that? And, and then figured out, okay, no, storyboards, that's how the professionals do it. Yeah, yeah, and it was sort of by osmosis, uh, filmmaking on the fly. Now, filmmaking on the fly can sometimes get a little dangerous, especially when kids are in charge. One day, there was a fire on the set. Most of the interiors we shot in my mom's basement, which had this big rambling basement, multiple rooms. So uh, we would, we'd only shoot in the summertime. Um, you know, it was like summer camp. You know, we'd, we'd do production, pre-production during the school year, but during the summer that was our time. So uh, think 120% humidity, typical Mississippi summer day. Um, we'll start early and, um, and uh, saunter down to the basement where... You know, it's made up like a Nepalese saloon with my dad's old wine bottles lining the uh, lining the uh, the shelves, and, and Jason, our cameraman, is wiring up squibs to go off in the wall. Um, and uh, we have, uh, you know, the the Nepalese saloon nearly burns down, and um, our moms had shut us down the previous summer because, well, they spotted a shot with me with my back on fire, and for some reason I had a problem with this. Um, so. But they allowed us to continue with uh, two words, adult chaperone. We found an adult even less responsible than we were. And so um, he helped us uh, guide us to when, you know, there wasn't enough fire in certain edges of the frame, you know, more, more gasoline over there. It's a wonder we didn't burn the house down. Don't try this at home, kids. When making a film, be it in Hollywood or Mississippi, there are several stages of production. There's pre-production, shooting, and post-production. Here again is Eric on the pre-production efforts to build this monumental tribute film. First summer was entirely nothing but pre-production, drawing storyboards, scouting locations, casting, costumes, props. Year two, we finally shot, kept none of it because again, we didn't know anything about filmmaking. Um, 
so there's very few shots that, that we actually kept from that first year, but there are certain scenes that we just would shoot over and over and over again. Through uh, trial and error, we slowly picked up things about uh, learning about composition, lighting, blocking, acting, and bit by bit we got better. And only when we were satisfied with uh, the quality of a shot and of a scene would we move on to the next. Now these kids are obviously determined to get the film made, but there was another major hurdle that they would have to overcome back in the early 80s. And that was just simply having access to the film that they were trying to recreate. We only actually saw the movie a few times, you know, uh, uh, and worked pretty much from memory for the first handful of years until the film actually came out on Laserdisc in 84. And so we cobbled together absolutely everything that we could in terms of you know, Raiders paraphernalia, you know, um, storybooks and magazines and, and bubblegum cards and, and all that stuff, the comic book and the screenplay, and, and to the best of our memory, sat down and, and Eric, you know, chiseled out well over 600 individual storyboards that we then used as a blueprint. But we, you know, we went back to the theater as much as that we could, but, um, you know, for those of us who kind of remember the 80s, there were... In video stores were really in their infancy that you couldn't really go down and rent whatever you wanted you know um, there was an availability issue you know and and it was in a movie when they kind of re-released things so when the movie was re-released in the theater we went back and watched it you know again as much as our you know allowance would allow. So the boys ended up finishing their scene by scene remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark with their big premiere at an auditorium of the local Coca-Cola bottling plant in Gulfport, Mississippi on August 12th, 1989. Chris Trompolis, Eric Zalock, and Jason Lamb have just finished an eight-year recreation. The trio premiered their version of Steven Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark. I hope to major in film and television. It's the hardest thing I've ever done so far. We've been following this story off and on for the past three years. Let's get you up to speed by turning back the hands of time. Action sequence, take one. It was shot out of sequence, so due to its long filming period, many actors randomly appear at different ages throughout the course of the film. They completed every scene in the film except for one that was too complicated and expensive for the kids to convincingly pull off. It's the scene from Raiders where Indiana Jones is in a fistfight with a big bald Nazi next to an airplane with rotating propellers. At the last moment when Indy is getting his ass kicked, the Nazi gets hit by the plane's propeller and is shredded into a million bloody pieces that splatter all over the side of the airplane. But it's a pretty good effort considering it's the only scene the kids couldn't match. After setting Mom's basement on fire, it was probably a good idea to nix the death by propeller scene. The boys went their separate ways going off to college and the film was largely forgotten until 2003 when a film producer got his hands on the copy of the remake. Here's Chris on the film getting discovered all those years later. I didn't even tell my wife I was an Indiana Jones fan. So she had no idea that I had even done this Raiders thing. And so when it got discovered in 2003 and like exploded, you know, and got us into Vanity Fair and we were all of a sudden touring around the United States and going to Germany and Australia and, you know, my wife was like, um, so what's this Raiders thing, you know? I mean, can you like let me see it? You know, I'm like, eh, it's like this thing that I did. And, you know, I still had that like, that reaction, you know, and she's like, this is cool, this is great. So this little remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, born out of the sweltering summer heat of the Mississippi swamp country by a couple of kids with nothing better to do, suddenly had the attention of Hollywood. Each of us um, received 
a very kind letter from Mr. Spielberg thanking us for our very loving and detailed tribute. And uh, my wife actually, you know, photographed me at various stages of opening the letter and just sort of like gazing down, you know, stationary Steven Spielberg and, you know, his signature and, you know, this, my boyhood hero who I spent my entire childhood emulating his, his work. Um, uh, wow, it can't get any better than this, but I was wrong. Um, you know, jump forward a year and we've been screening and written up in Vanity Fair and uh, we're in Los Angeles doing the Today Show and uh, the Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn and we get a call from our agent. We have an agent now. Um, Spielberg wants to meet you in his office tomorrow at noon. God, <laughs> I was doing okay handling all this up to this point, but now I feel kind of sick. In the year 2014, Chris and Eric raised enough money to go back and film that scene that they couldn't quite pull off as 12-year-olds, thus completing the childhood project that started back in 1982. Be sure to check out the documentary about this charming little story online. Show it to your kids. It's called Raiders, the story of the greatest fan film ever made. I'm Jesse Edwards, and this is Our American Stories. <laughs>